Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. We are launching this channel with some in-depth interviews with some great people from the squash world. But we're also trying a little experiment first by doing two versions of each interview. One is the full-length interview that Squash Radio had with each guest, and two is a more produced version that takes some of the highlights from each conversation. Making those cuts is actually pretty challenging since we think it's all great content. But let us know what you think. Should we continue to do both? Send us an email to squashradio at gmail.com. Also, if you have any great stories that involve squash, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for listening. What about this? This call is... Hey there, Squash fans, and welcome again to Squash Radio. We have a great guest for you today. He is based out of Philadelphia, and he is someone who I think is completely fascinating and one of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure to meet. That is the one and only Dr. Eric Zilmer, who is the athletic director and Carl R. Pacifico Professor of Neuropsychology at Drexel University. Dr. Zilmer has been a transformational force for Drexel Athletics. He's helped to drive excellence both within the department as well as for the student athletes achieving amazing results both on and off the field. On the academic side, he has published several books, one of which is called Military Psychology. But he has also published more than 100 journal articles and appears regularly on local and national media outlets covering a range of topics including sports psychology, neuropsychology, forensic psychology, and the psychology of terrorism. For his work on the military and understanding the psychology of terrorism, he has been one of the few civilians invited by the Pentagon as a distinguished visitor to go to Guantanamo Bay. But another great way to learn about Dr. Zilmer are the organizations and committees that he serves outside of his day job. They reflect his own diverse range of passions and interests, from sports, arts, culture activities, and civic duty. He serves on the executive board of the Philadelphia Sports Congress, the Philadelphia Classical Guitar Society, the International House of Philadelphia, the Austrian Society of Pennsylvania, advisory board member to the local urban program, Squash Marts, as well as serves on the Olympic Sports Liaison Committee between the NCAA and the USOC. Dr. Zilmer was born in Tokyo, Japan, raised in Europe, and is bilingual in English and German. He has a passion for arts and has exhibited work in Italy and Philadelphia. He studies and plays the classical guitar, but also produces events around the community. For sports, he enjoys golf, tennis, court tennis, and of course, squash. So I got to know Dr. Zilmer while I was working at US Squash as the event CEO of the US Open. We worked together as part of the team to turn the US Open into the great event it is today with its unique venue layout, its fantastic on and off court programming, as well as it became the first squash tournament in history to offer parity and prize money for both men and women at the World Series level. In the extended version of this interview, you'll hear him talk about his trip to Guantanamo Bay, how he transitioned from being a psychology professor to the athletic director. But in this selected version, we cover 
the before and after picture of the Drexel Athletics with Dr. Zomer. We dive into the reasons for his success and how he approaches his leadership role. And naturally, we talk about squash and how Drexel built up its program, as well as Dr. Zimmer's thoughts on college squash and the NCAA. And of course, don't forget to stay tuned for the quickfire section of this program. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation with Dr. Zimmer, and we, uh, we hope you do too. So without further ado, here we go. Right there, squash fans. Well, we have a great guest for you today. It's Dr. Eric Zilmer from Drexel University, and I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Connor. I'm so excited to do this interview because um, ever since I met you, you've been one of the more fascinating and unique people I've met in my life. And there's so many ways that I can back that up, but you know, you're one of the unique or a few people in the world that has had a chance to visit Guantanamo Bay, and. Um, <laughs> I wanted to kickstart it there because, and I think uh, if people are interested in this, I recommend you going to uh, uh, Eric com, and um, he describes all of this in great detail. But, you know, I, I'd like to hear from your perspective, kind of an overview of what drew you to this project and just what you kind of experienced there. Yeah, Connor. Thank you. Look, I'm very interested as a psychologist in uh you know, when people engage in behaviors that are maladaptive, including terrorism, I'm interested in the perpetrators, what they're thinking, what are so, some of the social mechanisms that create those behaviors. And so I've been working in that space for a long time, uh, terrorism, mm-hmm. and psychology of terrorists. And it's really been formed by having grown up overseas, uh, where terrorism was more common in the 70s. I was at the Munich Olympics, when a terrorist or Red Army faction attacked the Olympic Village and took Israeli wrestlers hostage, and we all know how that ended, and it just was interesting to me. And my father, he was a, was a West Point graduate, had a military career in intelligence, and uh, because of that, I grew up all over the world, was born in Japan, lived in Europe, lived in different places. I just have this interesting perspective on different cultures and what motivates people to do what they do. And so I've got interested as a psychologist in the understanding really the criminal mind, whether it's a murderer or a serial killer, or in this case, uh, perpetrators of terrorism. And because of my work at the Department of Defense invited me to spend a day at Guantanamo and their facility there, where they, at the time when I visited, they had about 200 detainees there. Mm. And I was allowed to uh, look at the interrogation procedures, talk to the interrogators, uh, look at the facilities, what they call inside the wire. And of course, as you can imagine, I I remember every minute of that day. I mean, you're, you're basically in Cuba. When you land, they welcome you to free Cuba. And they were very cooperative. And I really believe that at the time when I visited, it's very much a military prison compared to some of the waterboarding and torture that took place, I would say, between 2002-2006. So that was an interesting visit. I don't remember seeing any squash courts. I did see a <laughs> nine-hole I did see a nine-hole golf course, which I would have to say is the worst golf course I've ever seen in my life. But there is a golf course in Guantanamo Bay. They, they ask you to water the green as you leave, exit the green, and you bring a mat along to play from a mat, not from the grass. 
But, uh, you know, I've always tried to get into interesting spaces. And when I was introduced to U.S. squash, that was another interesting space for me to understand how that world works. Because, as you know, I grew up with sports, but I did not grow up with squash. Can you talk a little bit about how you got notified that you would be accepted um, to be able to go down to visit Guantanamo Bay? Yeah, you know, I was sort of an independent contractor, as you, as you know, I'm a professor. And at the time, I believe the Department of Defense was very interested in having anybody look at this objectively. They had such a bad PR about how they were managing Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. As you know, it's a political hot potato. It's, you know, when you go to war, Connor, sometimes people need to think that through. And, you know, you'll have prisoners of war. And you will not know where they came from. There won't be any eyewitnesses. Uh, it's very hard to say who's the kind of due process that we use in America, and that's why they're on foreign soil. They really don't have any rights. And yeah. be it as you may think about it, one way or another, that's that's what happens when you go to war, whether you're, whether you're in a gulag or in a concentration camp, or in this case, in a, in, a, in Guantanamo Bay. So I, got, I received a letter inviting me, uh, and uh, of course I thought initially the letter might have been written by you or by somebody else as a joke. <laughs> But I accepted, and it was a distinguished visitor trip. I was housed at Andrew Air Force Base. I was flown on a private jet down to uh, Guantanamo, and I was given truly all access. And uh, the military, they they get misperceived a lot. Of course, they know what they're doing. It is a complicated situation, socially, politically, and militarily. But, um, yeah, I wrote about it. I thought it was a very interesting very interesting day for me, and uh, I, I thought it was a great opportunity to see what our government does to those that they find of what they call high-value prisoners, you know, individuals that are involved at the time in Al-Qaeda terrorist operations, moving money, learning how to build bombs, creating a safe house infrastructure. Those were the detainees that were there, and it was... It was really a crazy situation because there's a bunch of psychologists there that are trying to keep those detainees alive. Many have been there for six, seven years at great cost to our government. Uh, many of them are suicidal. Yet there's another group of psychologists, which is a very controversial topic, that, that help in the interrogation of these detainees, which since then has stopped or is mm-hmm. at least under is a, is a really hot potato. If it's done, it's a secrecy. So I was sort of given access to all of that. Wow. You know, they told me they're not going to spin anything. Of course, they everything was spun right from the very beginning. <laughs> but um, and the, the weirdest thing, Connor, is they, of course, I didn't take my cell phone. I didn't take a camera. But they gave me my own private cameraman, you know, issued by the U.S. Navy. <laughs> I go, like, that's interesting. And they gave me about 200 pictures. They were never, never with a wide angle, but it was interesting. I was, I have, so I also have pictures that show uh, some of the things that you see. What's, what's called inside the wire, including yeah. an arrow, an arrow on the prisoner's floor that points to Mecca, with a number yeah. of something like twelve thousand two hundred and twenty-six kilometers, just to tell them they're very far from home. Of course, they don't believe the arrow. They, they pray into their own direction. Oh, there's right? a lot of dis- there's a lot of distrust between the detainees and those who who protect them and also who uh, incarcerate them. So it's a very complicated situation. You gave a little bit of 
a reason why or the the terrorist attacks that happened at an early age for you it you know that created a lot of intrigue and fascination but how do you close that gap between what interested you and fascinated you towards becoming really this making this a field of your study well i've always been interested in it you know my father was in world war ii i'm a i'm the product of, of a war marriage my dad graduated west point in 44 went over and fought the war for a year in the European theater. After the war, he married my mother, uh, an Austrian figure skater. My dad played baseball, football, and track and field at West Point. So I I grew up in a sports family. And of course, I was also interested in all the things that my father experienced, including he was part of the 42nd Rainbow Division that liberated Dachau concentration camp just outside of Munich. I always was interested in it. And it was a hobby. And, and I also went to German school, Connor, as an American. So I always wonder what the generation of fathers did of my friends in their, in their third Reich. Nobody, nobody wanted to talk about it. And, uh, and so I just sort of sat on that until you know, I came to the United States as a junior in college and finished graduate school, got my doctoral degree. And, and I really became an expert in, in the psychological assessment, in psychological assessment including forensic assessments. So once I also had a skill to look at it, I uh, mm. found out my first book that I published, I found out that over 200 psychological records were given to uh, third Reich war criminals, Nazis, uh, from collaborators to those who were the architects of the Holocaust. So I found all of those records in Europe and all over the world, and I wrote my first book on those records called The Nazi Personality. So from there... You know, when 9-11 happened, I was already working on terrorism for over 10 years. So it's something that I've worked on for a long time. I'm going to teach a course at Drexel in, in the next quarter called The Rise of ISIS. And uh, if that's not the furthest thing on your mind from world-class professional squash. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, you know, sports is a great catalyst. And when I was on that plane going down to Guantanamo, you know, they all looked at me like I'm a spy, which in a way I was. Right. You know, I, yeah. they, they really couldn't control me or what I think. And I think the American educational system is such a beautiful thing because you're allowed to think whatever you want to think. Not that every thought is useful, but you're allowed to think things like maybe, maybe terrorists are normal, maybe they're dangerous. You can explore those ideas. And you know, people looked at me kind of wary but they looked at my bio and they also saw I was an athletic director and right. we talked about sports. And so <laughs> everybody, you know, everybody went to school somewhere. Everybody's a fan of professional football and sports just cuts across all those classes and ranks in the military. And, and, and it was a great way to, to break the ice and uh, have a good relationship with these people who are really just doing their job and they're trying to do it the best way they can in a very complicated environment. I mean, talk a little bit about how you transitioned or, you know, came to be the director of athletics at Drexel, because your background is all uh, in psychology. And how did you make that transition? Obviously, you have a deep passion and roots for for sports, but how did that come about? So when I took the position at Drexel University, I was an assistant professor. I ran the first PhD program in neuropsychology, and that's something I really enjoyed. I felt the answer to understanding the meaning of life lies in the synapses of our brain, whether it's religion or hitting 
uh, a volley on the squash court. And so that's why I took the job at Drexel. It was a great opportunity, and it, it was everything it shaped up to be. I was very happy. But, of course, I grew up in sports. I My sister is an Olympic figure skater. My mom was a world-class figure skater. You know, as you know, when, when sports is on in your household, you know, somebody walks in, there's a game on the TV, and your parents go like, well, who's playing? Right. And it's a great it's a great way to grow up, I believe. I, I, of course, I'm a proponent of sports because it cuts across ages and authorities, and it's a great way for a family to bond and talk to each other. And so I had this great experience, and I I was more of a I was more of an athlete that played a lot of different sports. My best sport was skiing, alpine skiing. We grew up in a small alpine village at the Olympic Training Center for figure skating, where my sister was skating for West Germany. And I was skiing every day, and I was very, very good, but I also was prone to injuries. I broke my leg twice, and so I tried basketball, I played tennis, I played club volleyball, I was the goalie for our varsity school team. So when I got to Drexel, I would go to the gym every day. As I got to know people, like lunch ball, and just talk to the coaches with no real motivation to do really anything formal. You know, they started embracing me and said, hey, you want to be the faculty athletic representative, which is a person who uh, oversees the academic integrity of all the student athletes in our varsity mm-hmm. Division One program. So I said, sure. And as, that, and as I worked in that role, I, I got to become friends with our then president, Taki Papadakis. And one day, on April 8th, 1998, uh, I know the date because it, it kind of changed my life, Connor. I mean, they, they said, yeah. look... Um, you know, we're going to make a change in the athletic program, and we'd like you to be the athletic director. you got five minutes to make up your mind. No way. No way. <laughs> now, mind you, that's, well, that's how, you know, Taki Papadakis was Greek-American, and <laughs> that's, how, that's how they like to make decisions. And right. One has to understand, I was at the height of my intellectual career. I just published a, a major textbook on the brains that was used in over 500 universities across the world. I just got a named professorship. So we just got our neuropsych program that I've been working on for 10 years, approved by the American Psychological Association as an accredited clinical psychology program. These are all things I worked on very hard. I was the president of our national organization. Uh, All of these things came together in 1998. And I thought, you know, I've accomplished all these things, and I think it's hard to become being an aging professor at a university. So that's what I've done always in, in life, Connor, and I think that's what sports teaches you to be, to be, uh, you know, not surprised when you have an opportunity to, to live in the moment, to make decisions on the fly, to take risks. Those are all things that sports teaches you. So maybe because of my world and my life in sports, I said, this is a great opportunity. You know, I, I'm going to go for this drop shot, and I'm either going <laughs> to win the point or I'm going to get, or I'm going to get, uh, I'm, I'm going to lose. So I said, <laughs> let's do it. Now, looking back, it's really not any different than being a senior vice president or being a high-level administrator. I mean, it's still in higher education. I, I still work at Drexel. You know, I still have tenure, but that's that has been 19 years ago, and it's really yeah. one of the best decisions I've made. And I've always told my students, you know, the most interesting people are those that don't know what are they going to do the next day. You know, yeah. If you have a complete plan, a game plan, including in sports, you have to, you're, you're not going to be able to succeed. You know, if you're open to opportunity and challenges that, 
that you have that are presented to you and you listen. And I'm not saying everybody should be like me, but for me, you know, if I would just not have listened, I would have, I would have said no. I would have been doing something different, but this has been a great opportunity and, and all the things that you and I have been working on together to, to raise the level of awareness of, about professional squash and intercollegiate squash, it's been really a great journey. Just to give some context, would you mind giving a kind of before Dr. Zilmer took over director of athletics almost 20 years ago now and where it is, you know, where it was then and where it is today? Well, one of the things that I think I appreciate doing and I feel I know you well, I think you're the same, is to build things, to create things, to look into spaces that haven't been really explored rather than managing and taking care of things. So when I took over athletics, it wasn't in great shape. I mean, that's why they were making a change. So at the time, I mean, really very few people cared about Drexel Athletics. We had a good basketball program, but that was just about it. We had a building with no windows. We raised $40,000 a year. We were playing local teams. And, um, yeah, it was, it was that kind of a situation. However, we're, we were Division One, so the opportunity for us was, was really great to, to be something more than, than we were. And since then, we've joined a, a new conference with really great national schools like, you know, the College of William & Mary mm-hmm. or the College of Charleston. We are playing now a national schedule. You know, we just beat Oregon State in wrestling last week. We beat Georgetown in swimming uh, just this week. You know, we don't always win our our matches, of course, but we try to play a national schedule. And we're trying to also excel at a national and even an international level. And so our our wrestling team this, this year has been ranked top 25. As you know, our men's team in squash is ranked number five right now in the country. And our women, number 13, our women's basketball Right now is number one in the ESPN mid-major poll, and our field talking lacrosse teams have always been a perennial top 20 contender. So, and, and, and we're raising now you know, between 2 and $4 million a year and have over 2,000 donors. So we've, uh, we've come a long way. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's impressive. I mean, you're, you've been the core driver of the athletics. And I mean, what was... Um, what do you credit your success or your focus on being able to accomplish that? Well, I think two things, Connor, is the people you surround yourself with. And, uh, you know, you meet so many great people, interesting people skiing because you're sitting on a chairlift with them. Yeah. And for, for 15 minutes, I met this, this person who was a CEO of a company uh, called Computer Science Corporation. And that's a company with 120,000 employees. I said, what's your most difficult task you're dealing with day in, day out? And he said, people. <laughs> so whether it's, a really, whether it's a really large company or whether it's something like an athletics department, you have to surround yourself with the right people. And I, I really believe that everybody who works for Drexel Athletics believes in what they do. They, they just do. They have a passion about it. And so I've also been working with the same people, many of them who you know, uh, for really 18, 19 years. We've been yeah. a team that's had a stability. The other thing I believe is leadership. I mean, we, in, in, we have a president at Drex University, John Fry, who's just an amazing, creative, innovative, personable leader. And when you have good leadership, uh, it allows you to you know, be at peace with yourself and explore things that you're not afraid to explore. And so I think those two things are really, really important. 
for you to be a leader to your department, what are some things that you try and, and do for your team to support them? I think you have to be true to yourself. You know, for myself, I'm a leader who likes to create a social environment. You know, I'm not very good at, at organizing tasks. I hire people to do that. I'm not saying that that's, everybody should be like me, but I think you need to know your strengths and weaknesses when you're a leader. And of course, you know, in psychology, we, we study leadership. We wonder whether, it, whether you're born a leader, you know, like Winston Churchill, or whether you can learn to be a leader, like these thousands of, of retreats that have, you know, these business gurus come. I, I once went to one of them, and they, they had all these books like, you know, first break all the rules from good to better or whatever. I go like, those are great books, but has anybody ever read War and Peace by Tolstoy? I mean, you can learn a lot about business from that book. I've always been going against the grain about just leadership by paint the numbers. I try to create a social environment where we're like a community, we're a family. We look out for each other. We have a passion. And I think that kind of chemistry is very, very important. It's hard to create because what you're creating is culture, you know, it's the hardest thing. But if you, if you think about some of the companies like Tesla uh, right now, I have to drive one. So I, I follow them or Apple, I would say maybe 10, 15 years ago. I mean, those are companies that or not Google now, they, they create culture. Google, their, their primary culture is that you work in teams, that you don't have an ego and that you have a global view of the world. I mean, I would subscribe to that. So that's the hardest thing to do is to, is to create that culture. And you can't do it alone. You need all those people to help you. So when people say like, well, you've accomplished a lot, I don't, I don't really see it that way at all. I feel that, you know, the people that work for me or work with me in sort of a horizontal fashion have accomplished all those things yeah. because I let them, because I let them. Yeah, I mean, uh, the subject of leadership to me is, is fascinating. And um, my wife, actually, she works at Deloitte and does a lot of this as well. And, you know, one of the things that really I, I've had to be, whether it's when I was the captain of my squash team, you know, suddenly thrusted into those positions or, or being senior leadership at uh, U.S. Squash, it was kind of daunting. And I wish I had had this advice when I was was younger was, um, you know, we always look towards other models for success. And I think what you just said really resonates with me in terms of, being authentic to yourself and finding your own leadership style. And that kind of comes back to squash a little bit where I, I really like the way Nick Matthew plays or Ramia Shore. I can't play like that. So, you know, finding your own style and, and taking parts from everyone else, but then building your own, I think is, is really, it's hard to do, but it's, I think that's the best way of, of approaching it. Well, you're, look, Connor, you're a very unique, a very unique person. The series that you're doing on squash radio is fantastic. And you know, we've been so lucky to have you be part of when we started the U.S. Open for men's and women's squash at Drexel and hosting it. We were so lucky to have you be our partner uh, because I think you are very much uh, like I am. You're like an artist and you see things in different ways and you take risks. And what you have created and what has really developed since then uh, is, in my opinion, really uh, a significant event. So a sporting event, international sporting events, which is fascinating to watch. <laughs> well, a lot of that came down to you. And, you know, this actually segues nicely into um, what I want to talk about next in terms of the impact that sports can have on community. 
And I, you know, I think community can be interpreted both locally, whether it's Philadelphia, you know, nationally, U.S., but then internationally. And I, I mean, talk about vision. And I think you know more than anyone the impact that sports can have on community. When you were looking for opportunities, you know, what were you thinking in terms of maybe other sports or whatever? Like, how'd you come on on drawing in big events to Philadelphia to kind of accomplish that? Sports can be so interesting, and of course, if you were just a sports fan, you want to, you know, you want to do something like football or you know something big. But that that space is so occupied and so difficult to break into. I mean, just imagine, you know, some of the biggest uh, college football teams, Auburn, Albany, Penn State. How many years they worked at building their program? So you'd have to say, look, it's going to be really hard. We don't have a football program. So I've always felt that you have to be innovative and create something that maybe there's more room to excel because, you know, for sports, I don't have a problem with just participating, having fun, but if you want to celebrate sports or celebrate really humanity, you want to look at it at the, at the highest level. You want to see what's possible. You know, how far can you push it and celebrate, you know, pride through excellence in sports. So I really believe that sports at the highest level including professional squash is a, is a whole other thing of, of, of viewing human behavior. And I, you know, not every fan when an Eagles Dallas game in football thinks like me, right? They just want to have a, a cheesesteak, a beer and, and, and beat Dallas. But, but when you look at the Olympics or you look at a NFL high, highlight reel, you do begin to see a sports as art. And I'm really interested in that intersection. Uh, as a, as a, related to that, I, I took a little pilgrimage, and that's really what I thought of it, to Greece last year and visited Olympia, the original site of organized sports, which was founded in 1776 B.C. And for uh, over 500 years, they had the Olympics there every four years without an exception. You know how often we already missed the Olympics in the last 100 years, 1940, 1944, 1980, we boycotted, 1984, the Russians boycotted. I mean, for 500 years, these, they went every four years. And it really opened up my eyes for two reasons. One is nothing has changed. The stadium, the first original sports stadium built for 40,000 spectators, looks exactly like a stadium you would see now. The angles are where the referees sit. They even have a tunnel, Connor, where the athletes come out as if they're born into, into life and introduced to this, into, introduced into this space. They have the original starting line for track events. It's still, you can still see it. It's made out of marble. And you can also see what's called Cheater's Row, where if you cheated, uh, you'd have to pay a price, and then they would build like these little palaces that, you know, that worship the gods, what's called Cheater's Row. And so from the very beginning, you had spectators, you had athletes functioning at a high level, you had people who cheated. Interestingly, you could never find a rule book, ever. You know, they didn't, the Greeks didn't have very good language. As you know, they, they, they drew a lot on vases and things like that. And, it, and it's possible that there was no rule book that people knew when they cheated, which is a really interesting idea in sports because... You know, if you worry about hitting the pin or you, you want to pick up the ball on the second bounce, 
you, I, I would subscribe to you that you know, you know whether you will report it or not is something different. But so that was that was kind of interesting that you know over over two thousand years ago, uh, athletes really principally were exactly like they were. Now coming back to your question, of course, that's a long answer. But you know you have an opportunity to create new things, you know, or or put focus onto sports that are maybe not as mainstream, like lacrosse, who I believe has a great future in our country and is our only native sport, or or field hockey, which is a little bit still regional. Uh, you can you can compete at the higher level, and so yeah. when when you as squash and and my president John Fry came to me and said, you know, could we use your facilities to host the U.S. Open? I was already living in that intersection of like taking chances on sports that are not necessarily mainstream but that are fascinating. So it didn't take me long to to say like, yeah, let's let's go for it. Let's see let's see what we can do. Well, and that was 2011, and it was because it coincided with Drexel going from a club uh, squash program to a varsity program. And I have to think that that wasn't by coincidence. What? Um, so when you guys started out, I mean, did you have the vision of being national champions? Is that the goal, or you want to just make sure that you guys were competing at the highest level? It was just an opportunity. I mean, you just... You know, I uh, I started playing squash in the 1990s. I'm a I'm a competitive tennis player. But we had these courts, these North American courts at Drexel, and my department head played squash. And I said, let's play because I I mean I can play tennis. How hard can it be, right? And he and he just he just whipped me. I mean it was just and because because he was better than me and because he was my authority figure, I challenged him. You know, every week to a match. I don't think I ever beat him. And and so I was introduced to squash, and it was very interesting to me. And then when I became athletic director, I, I kept playing. As you know, it's a great workout. It's just like so much fun. And then I always thought these squash courts that we have in the basement, and as you know from just traveling around the country, there's like all, all these relics, right? These North American squash courts. They're, they're even in our league. Uh, and some of the universities, they use them for storage. You know, so yeah. they're... And, and I always dreamed that one day we could like convert them into something better. And then in 2001, uh, we started Squash Smarts at Drexel. We had you know, two wonderful women came to my office, and uh, Lisa Stokes and Pam Endy, and they came and said, hey, we have this, this nonprofit, this community outreach program where sport is a catalyst for social change and inner city youth. And mind you, Connor, I get that every week, okay? Right. People want to use our facilities, and of course, you want to help people as much as you can. But they they made so much sense, and they were so elegant and charming. And I was thinking, God, I have these, these courts. I really don't use them very often. Why don't we start that? So we started Squash Marts in 2001. We got uh, Lenfist to help us with some of the funding. Chase Lenfist, he's very generous. He's a squash player from Yale, as you know. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, uh, we created this little culture of squash smarts. And what happened then is we had intramurals for the first time. And after three, four years, we had a club sport. This was all related to starting squash smarts in this space with North American courts. And so by the time in 2011, we were talking about professional squash at Drexel and a, and a varsity team. We've been playing club uh, squash for five years and had squash marts for 11 or 10 years. So 
we were, you know, so it would, be, it would have been harder to go from zero to 100 miles per hour in one day. But we were working on this for a while, but we never thought about making it varsity until we had the opportunity to do so with the leadership that we had at Drexel and the opportunity to host the U.S. Open. So then we jumped into this idea, and it just really it just shows you sort of the process of creativity and taking advantage of a situation that presents yourself. Because all of the things we've done since then have been just fantastic. So yeah. it was the right decision for our university and for our athletic department. And, and we've made so many friends and we've been just, you know, we've, our program is six years old. And the other day we, we played, a, I went to the match uh, that we played against Yale at Drexel. And we have, I mean, the place is packed. We have hundreds and hundreds of people watching this incredible match and college squash is fantastic. Gosh, I wish I, I would just be plucked from my current job and put into some squash club at the age of 10 and start all over again. It would be so much fun. And it was amazing. And if you think that this culture was created within six years at this high level, it's hard to believe. So, you know, it gives you a sense of pride and what's possible. And of course we couldn't have done it without U.S. squash and without uh, my leadership at the university, specifically John Fry, who was, a, was an amazing leader and a, and a very uh, good squash player himself. Speaking as an athletic director, and if you're talking to other athletic directors in there, because now Drexel has distinguished itself um, into an amazing uh, squash program, what would you tell them in terms of why should our athletic department consider doing a squash program? Yeah, it's a tough, uh, you know, I think it's a tough one. This is going on at the University of Virginia right now. I just visited their complex. It's beautiful. But, you know, the interesting thing about Virginia is you, you see they're, they're right next door to their tennis complex. Of course, I checked that out because I like to play tennis. And they won a national championship in 2015 in men's tennis, right? Which is an amazing accomplishment, okay? Yeah, yeah. That's it sounds unbelievable. To win a national championship is an amazing accomplishment. And so I think... For a school that's already really well established, and by the way, Virginia is doing great. They have a great pro there, and I think the best is yet to come for them. Um, but for a program like that, who who is really, I mean, Virginia is one of the top ten athletic departments in our country, and their goal is to be number one. And I would say UCLA or Stanford might be at that right now. But for those kind of programs, what would you really add if you already are functioning at that kind of high level, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and then for programs that are more like what we call mid-majors, like in our conference, you know, we, we're struggling with finances uh, at every turn. So we're, we're not thinking about adding sports. I mean, we want to compete in the sports that we have. And, you know, more isn't necessarily better. So I, would t- I think it would take a really creative leap of faith to do something like squash. But I do think it is the right thing. You know, I'm on the uh, NCAA Olympic Liaison Committee, so I go to Colorado Springs with, as part of the Olympic Assembly and the meetings of the United States Olympic Committee. And my role is to help facilitate any of the 45 boards, they're called National Governing Bodies, NGBs, to see if there's anything in a, in a college environment that restricts potential Olympians or Olympians from really doing what, what they need to do to win a medal. As you know, we won 121 medals in Rio, 
of which 30 were won by student athletes and 80% former student athletes. And so as part of that meeting, I, I was given uh, information about how many sports were added in the United States of America in the collegiate environment. And it's not more than 10, okay? And then you also see how many sports were cut. And there were about 20 cut. So there's actually the culture right now in, in intercollegiate athletics is to have less sports, not more sports, less sports because it's expensive and it's becoming ever more expensive to have high-level NCAA Division I sports. And so I think that's what you're going against. You're really swimming upstream. However, you know, it's not impossible. I think in some cases it's the right thing to do. And I, I do think that for college squash, the best is yet to come and that more programs will see what is possible. But I hear that all the time, like, oh, look what they did at Drexel. Why don't we do that here? Well, you're, you're saying that to somebody, a program that doesn't even, that didn't have, you know, 10 years of squash, intramural club sport, uh, squash smarts culture. It would be like a completely new sport, like saying to the University of Florida, let's start skiing. Yeah, so, so I think it's possible, but I think it is difficult. Well, I think um, there are elements to draw on from the example of Drexel. And I, I do actually, I do get asked this uh, a fair amount. And I say, look, it's hard to go overnight. Um, you know, most overnight su- or perceived overnight successes have a, a strong legacy of years of, of, of hard work and uh, accomplishments before then, right? So I, I think to your point is find an inroad and start building a program in some capacity, be it you know a strong club program or getting the faculty involved, or if you have courts, getting the students involved and you know really bridging that gap. Um, I completely agree. I think it's it's too much to go from zero to one hundred. Uh, yeah, what what has been accomplished is terrific. You know, as part of this committee I told you about, I work with USA Archery who's struggling to go from club sports to varsity status or women's wrestling that's struggling or wants to go from club status to varsity status. And I think both sports will, uh, and both are Olympic sports. And in both sports, we, America wins Olympic medals. In this case, squash is much more already defined as a collegiate sport. I will tell you this, Connor, every ounce of sweat that I have put into college squash my return of investment, my ROI has been phenomenal. Mm. And the fact that it's a global sport, international and international perspective, and that the students, the American students who come and play are, are great kids from great families, I think, I think it was a no-brainer. I, just, I believe it was one of the best decisions that we made collectively at Drexel University. And so, you know, having said about all the challenges, for me... It was a great opportunity to build our program and and to see remarkable kids from all over the world playing at a very high level against some of the best schools in our country. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, headline news: uh, Drexel University beats Yale. Uh, Drexel University beats UPenn five, both five four matches. I mean, that's uh, those are nice notches uh, to have under your belt for sure. We're we're very lucky. We're very fortunate to have some great players. We very much respect those teams you mentioned uh, because we respect them. We try to put forward our best effort. Uh, those are so, but just to be named with teams like that and play them to that level is really fascinating. 
Right now, uh, squash is not recognized as an NCAA sport. And, you know, I mean, if we could kind of put out a, what do you think are some of the steps that uh, as a sport we would need to do in order to close that gap, either on the men's side or the women's side? It would be easier on the women's side. You know, we still have Title IX issues as a, as a sport organization with the NCAA, primarily because there's no equivalence to football. You know, so you introduce men's football at 100 participants with 80 scholarships, roughly. You're going to have to find the equivalent culture for women. So it would be a lot easier on the women's side, plus the demographics are such that more and more women are going to college. And one way to measure Title IX is proportionality and participation. So on the women's side, it would be much better. And as you know, uh, women's squash was an emerging sport for the NCAA. So I feel that some efforts should be made, and I would be willing to participate in those efforts to put an application together to have women's squash be an NCAA emerging sport. And what would that do is it would uh, legitimize squash, I think, for both men and women, because you have that in crew. You know, the women are NCAA and the men are not. So it can create some tension, but I think it legitimizes squash for both sports. It gives you support from the organizational support from the NCAA. Uh, and it also gives you money. You get every time you sponsor a team in the NCAA, you get a certain amount of money. So in men's, men's basketball, it wouldn't be a lot of money because you spend so much money in basketball. But for squash, uh, where the budgets aren't as high, I think it would make a difference. So let's say you have 40 teams that play or 30 teams that play women's uh, squash at this level. It would be those 30 schools. You would invest those, that money you would get for the 30 schools back into the sport. And I think for, uh, as you know, there's less women playing squash than men. And if you put the NCAA logo on women's squash, I think more girls would go into the sport because they can see the recognition that has been embraced by a very large, very successful uh, sports organization, namely the NCAA. So I, I'm a complete proponent of this, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get other schools to think the way I do and, and to make this a reality. So I think that's something we could work. That would be the first step uh, moving it into that direction. Having said that, I think the CSA and, and uh, U.S. Squash is doing a great job in, in organizing squash at the highest level that they can. I completely agree with with that. And so what if uh, we have some squash parents or even some squash players listening? Is there anything that the community can do to help this case? Or, you know, is there anything we can we can ask or rally behind that you think you can think of? Well, there, there's a, a couple of good signs. One is, you know, we lost women's squash lost when, when we started squash. It was, or it was a few years before, it was still an NCAA emerging sport. You see, so I felt like, wow, that could, I could put that into the, uh, in my umbrella of sports. I have 18 sports, of, of which 15 are NCAA. Men's crew, men's and women's squash are not. But since then, they reformed that committee because, Connor, it's kind of silly to have an emerging sport and then take that status away again, right? Right. So <clears throat> you would try to build it forward and build it out. So they reformed that committee. Uh, it's it's very, I think it's a very good committee and with very good objectives. And so to get that to happen, parents really have very little to do. It would be the universities 
that would support that. You would need at least 10 letters of support from different programs, and you need to have at least 20 to 30 of those programs in place right now or have a very strong club sport culture. For women's intercollegiate squash, we, we have that. So we have that in place. So all we would need to do is do it if, if that's what the sport would want to do. So I believe that squash is already well on the way in terms of its organizational structure to accomplish that. But I don't believe that everybody's on the same page that this is one of their goals. I'm eager to help in any way I can. And uh, we couldn't be more fortunate as a sport to have someone like you, both in personality, but then leadership and vision involved, uh, helping to drive that. So uh, from the squash community, thank you very much for everything you've you've done. Uh, so just just while we're on squash a little bit, I want to shift gears a little bit about the U.S. Open and specifically an article that you wrote uh, titled The Psychology of the U.S. Open. And it has to be, uh, I love reading squash articles, but this probably jumps up into my top five, if not top three. And uh, so I encourage anyone listening to go check it out in Squash Magazine. I want to read one opening paragraph that really highlights why I love this uh, article. But then, you know, talk about it. I had so much fun reading it. I want to hear <laughs> how you came about writing it. So the psychology of the U.S. Open. Squash at its core is physics and neuroscience. If there is one sport that is defined by the laws of Einstein and Newton, it has to be squash, where every shot celebrates the study of geometry. I love it. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about writing this. Uh, oh, and you also break it down into sections. Ball play, the players, the game, sportsmanship, practice, and art. And you, uh, I love what you do in the article is you toggle between both being a passionate player yourself, but then you talk about the, you talk about it from being a professor, a PhD in, in psychology. So, t- I mean, t- tell me how you, you came about writing this article and, 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 and tell me more about it. Well, thank you, Connor. It was a great joy to write something about a sport that's so exciting. I would probably divide it into two areas. One is just the, the joy of writing. I've been, you know, if you're, if you're a professor, especially in psychology, every, your, your currency is words. And so, you know, as somebody who's bilingual and who didn't grow up in this country, I, I felt I was really challenged in trying to be successful in a, in a profession where everybody has a verbal IQ of 150. And so I really worked at writing. I mean, my father helped me and then was a master's in English. And then when I was in school, I always looked for a mentor. And I'm a great example that, that you can learn how to write if you put your mind to it. And so I've been writing for a long time. And so more recently, you know, I've gotten away from writing esoteric journal articles and books to writing more things that are that seem more relevant for journals. And and, and so I've been writing on mental health or on international recruiting. And I've been writing also a lot of opinion editorial pieces for newspapers, mostly Mm -hmm. on terrorism, but sometimes on sports. And I've really enjoy that because you're trying to make something come alive. You're trying to connect with somebody and you're trying to write it really in a non-academic way. So, so then I will turn to squash now. So when I'm watching, uh, you know, everything I wrote in that article is the absolute truth. I mean, I, I was just mesmerized with this, with this event, which is really 20 yards from my office. So I would start basically living in this space upstairs and watching pros practice 
I, of course, watched a lot of games. I got to know the referees. And after a couple of years, I got to know the players. As you know, two of those players, uh, Nikki and Simon, the German and the Swiss champion, because I speak German, I became friends with them. I give them my condo. They can stay in Philly. I chauffeur them back and forth. And so I have an interesting perspective of this tournament. And so I thought, I thought I really want to capture that from a psychological perspective because I can't write anything on squash technically. I'm not a good enough player. Uh, you know, I mean, recreationally, I, I once, you know, I played with the CEO and president of Kevin uh, of, of squash, Kevin Clipstein. I said, Kevin, be honest with me. I'm going to give you my best shot. And then I want you to tell me if I'm an A player, a B player, or a C or a D player. What grade did you get? Well, I think, unfortunately, he's an honest man, and he, he said B. I was absolutely devastated. I was hoping I could be a B player, but... But I do have two trophies in squash, and they they both say C on it, so it's probably <laughs> it was probably calibrated. Well, it was calibrated. Well, I think by in that case, C's, squash. C C could stand for champion, right? Yeah, well, no, it's listen. <laughs> I'm an average player. Let's face it. I uh, I know I am. So uh, I thought, but there's something going on, maybe that I can speak to that other people can't, which is the neuroscience of a high-level sport, the culture. The, you know, I studied physics in, in, in Germany, so I, I appreciate, I do appreciate the geometry that you mentioned. I do actually believe that people watch all sports. You know, the Super Bowl's coming up. You know, when you, when you make a pass or you punt the ball, I mean, people know when, it's, when the trajectory is going to come down or where it's going to, where it's, it's just a reaffirmation of, of our existence or our physical loss. I also thought this, Connor, you know, people come to watch squash, but, but maybe they're watching something bigger than just a ball game. And, and I really believe, I, I captured in the article, I say it's a, it's a mixture, mixture of a Circus de Soleil act and a, a Spassky uh, Fisher chess game in Reykjavik. I mean, it's, it's art. I mean, there's more going on in this cubicle than just hitting a ball. And that's yeah. how I came about thinking I want to write this. Of course, I always overshoot. I was thinking I might write this for like a really important, you know, like a really like intellectual magazine. But I didn't really know where I would publish something like this. And and I probably, I always write things without knowing where they're going to go, which people tell you is just the wrong thing to do. They say, like, what's your audience? But okay. I have so much confidence in it. I thought I thought it might go somewhere. So I started writing it. And then I have to give a lot of credit to the editor of Squash Magazine, James Sugg. And he, um, you know, he said, look, if you, I gave him the idea. And he says, if you write it, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And as you know, you know, Jim is an amazing writer in his own right. So now the yeah. bar was set very high. Yeah, right. So I, gave, I gave it everything I got. And I, I wrote this article that I think captures a different version. I would say a Jungian version of Squash. You know, Carl Jung was a, Psycho, psychologist, psychoanalyst, but he was really a philosopher. And what he talked about uh, growing up in Zurich, that you know, all these kind of behaviors, whether it's architecture or literature or art or, or squash play at the highest level, is an expression of humanity. He calls it, these are archetypes. And so I truly feel that this is true because every civilization, whether it's Greece or Rome or the Mayans or the Americans, they express 
their culture through sports. I mean, sports is really almost unnecessary, right? Why, why do we even have it? It doesn't really serve anything other than it serves a great thing, which is the fact that we're humans. And so I believe that nobody said that in squash. So I was trying to elevate squash to a higher level using, using this article. I don't know if I accomplished that or not, but I sure had a, I sure had a lot of fun and I appreciated, uh, you know, being published in the December issue of squash magazine. The other thing uh, that I was struck by was, um, and I'd like to know how, how this came about was, I think it just married, um, the written word and also the visuals in it, the photographs, and there's a lot of them are just so powerful. And, um, did you help select those or how, how did you come about with that? Well, I just provided the, 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 the writing and, and the editorial staff did a great job editing it because I do have a, a German accent a little bit. <laughs> My sentences have German, a German sentence structure, but then, you know, I've worked with articles like this for a long time and, and, uh, I told Jim, look, just just have fun with this. Take some risks in terms of like the layout. And I I didn't want to be a control freak and have it like be passed by and I have to like look at it. I really felt that whatever that creative team does would add to my article, but only if I allowed them to do their own thing. So I, I kind of learned this over the years that when you're dealing with creative people, you just let them go. And certainly I trust Jim and his team. And he created, they created a layout that I could not have, that I could not have created. So in a way I was completely right. They, they just added to what I was trying to communicate in their wonderful layout of the pictures and the graphics and, and made it very special. So I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think they really took that as a challenge and I, I respect and applaud their creative process in doing so. Yeah. Uh, uh, like I said, it was, it's definitely one of my top, uh, I think articles period. Uh, one last topic to talk about before I want to move on to, uh, some kind of quick fire questions, but you know, I've had the privilege of, of working so closely with Drexel, with yourself, the team, and yeah, I really get to see a different perspective of Drexel and where I, I use as an amazing example of how you can accomplish a vision and uh, one is setting it, but then two is, is going about setting it, uh, or sorry, accomplishing it. But one of the things, just to give some context to some, some audience members, is, um, is, is Drexel itself and, and how it's a little bit different from um, other schools in that it has a co-op program. And this is something I actually wish I had known about when I was going through college because I completely believe in that system. And if, so if you could just take a second and talk about um, how Drexel is different from other schools and, and talking about w where it's trying to go. Well, Drexel, the reason I was attracted to Drexel and I came from the university of Virginia at the time, which is a phenomenal institution, but I feel that institutions that have been very successful in the past play defense. They try to keep what they've accomplished and at universities like Drexel that are innovative, and that are creative play offense. And I certainly like to play on a team that tries to score a goal. And, and so I always felt being at, at a place like Drexel, a technological school in principle, uh, you know, learning by doing, yeah, that focuses on innovation in a global context, has been the right place for me. 
you know, nobody says, nobody says no at Drexel. You, know, you might have to find your own resources, but they go like, it's a good idea. Well, well maybe we should try that. So it's, a, it's been a great place to be innovative. And as it turns out, in 2017, Connor, I mean, what are you going to try to accomplish in higher education? Are you just going to teach these students a bunch of facts or a well-laid-out curriculum? Or are you going to teach them to solve the problems of tomorrow? So critical thinking, learning by doing, innovation, you know, that's what's going to, that's what's going to make people successful tomorrow, you know, pursuing your dreams. And, uh, and I, I, so I'm really happy at Drexel intellectually. I teach in the honors program now. And it's a great, interesting program because they're not really tied to a curriculum. There's no curriculum in honors. They all, all the students, of course, have majors. But the dean of the honors college, Paula Cohen, she said, Eric, we want you to teach the honors program, but you can teach anything you want. Think about that. I mean, it's a good question, really. It's really a good question for you, too. I mean, what would you teach, Connor, if you could teach anything for anything you want? <laughs> we'll get back to that later then. No, but, I, 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 oh. <laughs> I, I actually, I've, I've given this a fair amount of thought because, um, you know, for me, I, I struggled in academia, you know, I, and part of the reason for that is if I don't understand why this is going to be useful, I, I don't like to waste my time. And I, th- I think when you're a student going through that, um, that was very cloudy and milky for me, you know, now in, in business and, and being kind of, uh, set free. I mean, just taking even this podcast, for example, I was like, oh my God, I, I can't wait to do this. I knew nothing of podcasting. Figure it out. So what I'd like to teach is is is, uh, is how to, uh, pro- I guess, problem solving, creative thinking, and um, would be the two biggest things. And then stimulating curiosity. So that kind of like those three pillars and just, just cycling through that. Yeah, I mean, stimulating curiosity, uh, those are great words. I, I haven't used those words, but I will. Because, you know, if you think that the question is more important than the answer, if you believe that implicit learning, you know, learning that is sort of coincidental, is more important than ex- explicit learning, where you're giving a list of Latin words and now you have to memorize them, then, then I think you're creating an environment where students can feel they can take risks intellectually, it's safe for them. I'm not their teacher. I'm like one of them. I'm their peer, and we're going to go on a journey together. And it really doesn't matter what you teach. I mean, last year I taught a literature course for the first time in my life. This year I'm teaching a new course. I've never taught the rise of ISIS. I just, I'm just trying to teach something interesting and use it as a catalyst for them to think critically and I think the word that's going to be used in the next 10 years is adaptive intelligence. Mm. You know, that's what we're trying to get students to, you know, dip into. I mean, you know about emotional intelligence or social intelligence, even older word. But the, the term adaptive intelligence comes out of the artificial intelligence community. And it really means that whatever the situation that you're going to be in, you're going to be able to solve it. But you're going to have the, you're going to have the tools to do that. And those tools you can learn in college. So, so uh, to be continued, I don't have all the answers. You know, uh, I'm just part of the process. But, but that's I think that's what Drexel. Uh, coming back to your original question, I think Drexel does a really good job, Drexel University, in terms of creating this culture on a campus where the impossible might just be possible. 
So I love what Drexel does in terms of it's a five-year program. Uh, the first two years are, are basically teaching the core curriculum, but then the next three years are, are rotating between six-month internships and then going back to studies. And that cycle kind of goes back to what I was just talking about and being fascinated by. And I, I really you know, talk about preparing these students for a job environment and getting the, that kind of that cycling back and forth. So I, again, well, if you, I, if you wanted to learn squash, would you learn squash by reading about it or would you learn squash by doing it? Exactly. And yeah. so, and we have over 12,000 co-op positions and, you know, we, we put our 92% of our student population has two, six months rotations and they learn in the industry you know, how, how, how it works. And many of these kids then get also hired by those companies. So for those companies, it's a great way to have like a, an extended way of getting to know potential employees. In 2001, I started a program called sports management at Drexel. And, and if you think about sports management or learning the business of sports, which of course I learned on the ground running, right? But just think about you and I, we, we, we work in sports. And what if you actually could go to school for that? And what if you would have some time spent outside of the classroom, significant amount of time, where you actually get to, you know, have to do something? So when we have the U.S. Open at Drexel, we have over 100 volunteers and over 25 majors, sports management majors, who help with the the setup, tickets. and, And, you know, they may not be, you know, like hitting balls with, you know, with one of the pros, and they might be asked to clean the inside of the windows because the squash players have this terrible habit of cleaning their hands on the windows, but they're being part of that culture. And so when they apply for a job, they actually live what the U.S. Open is or uh, any other event uh, that we host. Absolutely, and that's what I've had the the privilege uh, of working with a lot of different institutions. And I think Drexel's students themselves really stood out. And I'll give you a perfect example that highlights what you just said is, um, uh, there's a girl, uh, Laurel Holly, uh, originally from Philadelphia, transfer student from uh, coastal Carolina. And I saw her uh, one year as a volunteer. And, um, next year she was helping out the staff, uh, a specific role. The next year she was one of the key uh, staffing roles at the U.S. Open, running all the programming. The following year, she's running special events programming and just took on more and more. Meanwhile, she is going through Drexel, right? And now uh, we're, I think U.S. Squash is so fortunate to have her on staff. And, uh, you know, I mean, she's a, brings a, a already out of the gates, just a wealth of experience that not many other people would have. And I think that that is... Um, why? I, I mean, she's very unique and special. Um, I think that is kind of the story at Drexel. So um, couldn't help but uh, <laughs> take that moment. I, I think I lied. One closing topic, because I think this is just um, so core to where Drexel is going, is John Fry. And, um, you know, y- you've been uniquely positioned to to work so closely with him and, and talk a little about, about what you think. You know, just talk about him and, and, and your impressions of John Fry. Well, you know, he's my boss, so it's great to work for a boss who has two really exceptional qualities. One is his personal qualities, and the other are his professional qualities. You know, as a person, Connor, he's very sociable. He 
you you feel like you're talking to somebody who is in your foxhole all the time. And I can't think of anybody who is more fun to work for. On a professional level, he's just, I mean, a truly amazing person. There is no such game, you know, but if there was a game where the rules were, you're sitting in a circle, and every every person, when when it's your turn, you have to think of a thought that's exceptionally large and altering, right? So you might say, oh, one day I'm going to bring a professional squash tournament to Drexel and I'll be successful. And people go like, wow, that's really good. You get a lot of points for that. But when it comes, when it's John Fry's turn, he would always win this game. His answer would be something like, well, I'm really reimagining how higher education is being delivered across the country. Or... I'm redeveloping the urban landscape of Philadelphia. I'm moving the center of Philadelphia west to University City. I mean, those, I mean you and I are not small thinkers, but those no. are kind of the, the kind of scale of thinking that, that you get when you're on John. And um, so, you know, you're, you're, you know like, like I told you before, I'm a C player in squash and in the game of life and in higher education, you know, squash is a, is a pro. And you're always, you know, you're always playing at that level in terms of the speed of the ball and the tactics. So you, you know, you got to be on your toes. So it's been a great ride, and he's been great for Drexel. He's been great for me personally, uh, and I, I really enjoy what we're doing right now at Drexel. As you were talking, I was actually making that same analogy of like both you and I can think you know, visionary thinking. Uh, you know, have had to lead people, and and John Fry is just operating on a completely different plane. Um, which is good. It gives me. It, it, I, I've. I marvel at him in the way that he. Um, I, I don't know how he does what he does, and I mean, talk about for for Philadelphia, uh, the three point five billion dollar real estate deal. I mean, I. I wouldn't know where to start with that. Um, I can run a U.S. Open championship, <laughs> but it, it really is something to marvel at. Well, you listen, Connor. You're doing a great job here. You you would win over me in that game as well. So <laughs> you're, you're, you're a very insightful, interesting person. And I really believe that, that you as squash is lucky to have you. I'd, so I'd like to switch into just the closing part of this segment. And uh, it's been so much fun, but this is just some quick fire questions. So you can be as quick or as long with your answers, but uh, I just wanted to, to switch gears. So your favorite mode of transportation, what is it? Well, I have I own two motorcycles, a Harley and a Vespa, and I would go with the Italian Vespa. Italian. Now, having said that, my Tesla is being charged right now in my garage, and it's having a uh, it's crying right now because I didn't mention it. It is an amazing automobile, but when you put it all together, I I would take you on my Vespa if I would have to take you somewhere. Well, I hope that's a promise. Um, um, favorite movie, favorite movie or documentary? Yeah, just watch Thirteenth. Everybody should watch it. It's a new documentary. I believe it's by Netflix on on our prison system and and we the fact that we incarcerate two percent of our of our population. I love documentaries. You know, isn't real life always more interesting than fiction? Mm-hmm. What is it something 
uh, either an activity or something physical that has given you disproportionate happiness? Yeah, music. I mean, I play guitar. Uh, I've been playing music all my life. I play, I study the classical guitar. I produce guitar concerts. You know, I, I, I would say differently. I, I would like to write a poem, Connor, and the title would be Things I've Never Regretted. Mm. And so what are some of the things that you've never regretted? And I've never regretted putting on a record. I've never regretted lighting a candle. I've never regretted opening a can of tennis balls. I've never regretted hitting, you know, a squash ball. So, but in all of that, I, w- I would say music is just a, is an amazing medium of, of communication. Completely agree. And um, one thing I'd have to uh, tell the audience is also we're going to get you, we're going to have play some of your music at the end here. So stay tuned. Um, <laughs> Um, is there anything new that you're thinking of trying and why? Well, you know, I, I love to travel and I always, and I don't know if this is true for you. Have you ever like, when you, when you go to a really beautiful place and you know, the fact that we're able to travel uh, like we do with modern aviation, is just, just think about it. It's truly amazing and mind blowing. Yeah. And the 11th century, the average person wouldn't move further away from the place that they were born more than three miles, three miles. So they would live within a three mile radius their entire life, have a family, kids, live, get born, die. And, uh, you know, we travel so much and it's so exciting. And one of my biggest challenges is whether I want to go back to the place I just discovered or whether I want to go to a new place. And my answer always is, I want to go to a new place. I, I find traveling to different cultures so inspiring. So I would say the answer is to travel to new destinations. I like it. What is uh, one of the most inspiring talks or pieces of video that you would recommend for someone that they could find on, on the web easily? Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, the writer for the the New Yorker magazine, who has many books out now, Outlier, Tipping Point, are a couple. He's I like just so inspiring. He's so inspirational. Would Would you like? Uh, David and Goliath. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers. David, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I and I got to meet him, and uh, he oh, was really? our keynote speaker at the our American Psychological Association conference in Boston. And I've also seen him present at the University of Pennsylvania, and I invited my entire athletic department to come along because I truly believe, even though he's a pop psychologist, and by the way, he knows that, so he's not pretentious at all. He's really one of the most entertaining, interesting people. Yeah. But the idea of the tipping point, you know, we, we discussed this as an athletic conference in the mid-2005 uh, or so, and, and we really thought, you know, we're right there. What do we need to do to just push us over the edge? And, and, and Connor Four years later, within four years, VCU and George Mason, two schools in our conference, went to the Final Four in men's basketball, which, as you probably know, is the holy grail. And then this other book, Outliers, uh, you should read it because I, uh, I think you're an outlier. I think you're an, I think you're an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> and what he what he taught me, and I think that's the key for 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 people to understand, is the advantage of disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Think about that. You know the idea. That, you know, like I was a failed athlete. I would, gee, I would lose more often than I would win. But, but because of all that, it created resiliency in my, uh, in my life. And so I, 
in a way, it's an advantage to have gone through what I have gone, uh, a, a, a career full of injuries and lost hopes and <laughs> defeats, whereas my sister was the top 10 in the world. I'm not even top 10 at the local squash club. So, um, yeah, I would I would recommend him. He, he's... Uh one of my favorite authors i completely agree it's it's a he he tackles f- seemingly uninteresting subjects and makes them completely fascinating and um to your point uh david and goliath really highlights that of what is a perceived disadvantage that yeah it creates adversity but then when people are able to overcome adversity i mean they they are ahead of the pack so um I- when when you look at that book of course i i read all of his books and then david goliath <clears throat> he talks about he actually did some research about David, the underdog. And he found out that when there's a clear underdog in a sporting event, 30% of the time, that underdog wins. Whereas you would think conceptually, the chances are probably 1%. Right? 1% yeah. yeah, of course, they're not more than 50%. They're the underdog. Yeah. So I tell my teams, I mean, it's a great trick of sports psychology that if you're the underdog, you're at an advantage. And, and in other words, you know, you want to be the underdog. Of course, you want to be the flat out favor, like Patriots are probably in one day Super Bowl, but, <laughs> right, but um, right. you, you want to, you want to be the underdog. So uh, it's a great, what, he uses sports as a metaphor for some of his analyses, which I also very much appreciate. He, he's a long distance runner. He's a marathon runner. Mm. And I think he, he has a passion for sports that comes out in his books as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, next question. If you had to give a Ted talk, but the rules were it, you couldn't speak about something that you're known for. What would you want to go explore and then share? Well, I don't know if I'm known. I don't know if I'm known for anything. <laughs> I, I love the concept of the TED Talks in my class. Mm-hmm. As, you, as you know, I love writing. But boy, I mean, by the time a kid's 21 years old and going to be hard to read all these papers. You know, I, I have my t- my kids, the students do TED talks in class. Oh, no way. Because yeah, that's their final project because I feel that they have to sort of emotionally embrace their topic. And I think it's going to be a lot more useful in their lives when they have to present an idea or a journey in front of a group or in front of a person or in a job interview, you know, but the thing about to answer your question, I've developed this great passion over the last five years where I'm a complete amateur at, and that would be gardening. Mm. And I, I just love taking care of plants. I think I love taking care of people. And I just have, I mean, I think you've been to my flat. I have all these yeah. plants and herbs. I just bought a greenhouse. I just love it. I love growing things. I love watering them. I try to learn about it. It's very complicated. When you go to a horticultural meeting, they they talk Latin and Greek. That's not what I'm talking about. I look at it as like a source of life. And I would like to figure out a way to do a TED Talk about gardening, which I know nothing about, but not talk about it academically and intellectually, to truly talk about, you know, what it is about growing something that makes you feel so special. And it's so beautiful. Plus, in some cases, you can you can also cook, you know, eat it and and cook, which, by the way, is my second passion, which I'm trying to learn more too. So, it'll be cooking and gardening. I like it. Uh, I, I I too have recently got uh, over the past 
I don't know, two, three, four, five years, um, cooking has become an increased part of my life. And really it's, I was listening to this podcast and um, a similar personality type to me, which is INTJ, described it pretty well. Is like, um, there were so many long-term projects that we work on in life, yet cooking for me is this kind of, uh, it's a specific task and you have to set your goal but then um, what you want to try and accomplish. And then in the cooking process, sometimes, like you said, you have to adapt, you know, oh, I made it too sweet. How do you, you know, how do you counterbalance that? And, you know, what, and then what I like is that within an hour or two, you have results and, uh, and they're, they're fun to taste the results. And, and then you get to think about what you want to do next and improve. So um, anyway, that's my <laughs> take on cooking. Um, last question. If you were to recommend any books about psychology for someone that wanted to get into it, and um, what would be a recommendation for an intro level and then kind of the, the progression from that? Well, I don't, you know, even though I write academic books, I, I don't suggest anybody read them. I feel <laughs> that that was a way yeah, of Yeah, just even knowing, about the field. Yeah. Yeah, uh, smart you are. So when I think about psychology now... I think of literature, Connor. You know, I feel um, that literature is psychology because you can only make characters come alive if you're really good at understanding human behavior. And so, you know, whether if you want to learn about psychology as a primer, you can pick up any introduction to psychology book. I mean, they are well done encyclopedias about human behavior. But if you want to like sit at the edge of your seat and, and talk of, and read about something that involves psychology, but they don't say it's psychology. I would recommend uh, a book like The Chess Story by Stefan Zweig, Z-W-E-I-G, is who, whose writings were, uh, the, were, were the initiation for the Grand Budapest Hotel. And that book is only 90 pages long, and you... And it's chock full of psychology. So, in fact, many biographers now say that Zweig, who was a friend of Sigmund Freud, was basically a psychologist, except he, he, read, he, he wrote literature. And so I really feel now, at this part of my life, uh, I love getting, getting into literature and understanding human behavior through the lens of literature. And that's, that's where I am right now. So I would recommend that book, uh, or Death in Venice, Thomas Mann, it's a fascinating book, and as you may know, these two books are very short. You know, as as I get very very busy, I don't recommend things like Moby Dick anymore. <laughs> like books like that, they yeah. take forever. But if you can capture something in fifty, sixty, seventy pages, or even a short story, I'm reading Hemingway's short stories right now. Uh, it's fascinating, you know, uh, and I and I believe absolutely convinced that that's the highest level of psychological introspection. What do you mean by that? I mean, at those, that Hemingway, he didn't study psychology, but he was an acute observer of human behavior. Okay, acute, one of the best. Mm. And, so, and so when he writes about human behavior, it is from that perspective. So I see psychology in it completely. You know, and so I feel that, that that's one way or the best way to get to understand human behavior is to read about it. You know, so... So I've got, I've gotten more away from the academic writings that, you know, we use to measure each other, how smart we are. 
to reading accounts of human behavior that are written by people who are truly introspective about the human condition. I like it. Well, I actually am so thankful for you being on the show and, and making time. And I could probably literally do this all day and um, that wouldn't be fair to you or, or other people. But um, so I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up here. But again, uh, I just want to thank you so much for your time. And, and also, you know, on behalf of the sport, I mean, you really are a leader uh, for the sport of squash and um, in sports in general. And, and so thank you for your time and thank you for everything you do. Connor, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, well until next time, um, well, hopefully we can get you on sometime, uh, maybe make this more routine, but uh, really appreciate your time. So thank you, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun. Thank you.